Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. Uh, church, if you'd open up your Bibles to Exodus, that's where we're going to be today. Last week, we started in the book of Exodus. Uh, we have been going through the Bible together as a church, and it took us from September to just before Christmas to get through Genesis, and now we're stepping into Exodus, a pretty exciting book of the Bible. Uh, we learned a little bit, just to bring you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, um, we learned a little bit about Moses and about how Moses, as a little baby, was floated down the river. This romantic story of, of somewhat romantic story of Jesus floating in the reeds and then Pharaoh's daughter picking him up and raising him as um, her own son. Uh, but, of course, she was a young woman and didn't give birth to him, so she was in no position to nurse Moses. And so it turns out Moses' own mother is his nursemaid and is taking care of him. And, and then he grows up in Pharaoh's home, but he always knows he's a Hebrew and uh, sees some Hebrews being uh, abused uh, in slavery and stands up and, and kills an Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And then this all becomes known and Moses has to flee for his life because uh, even though he was Pharaoh's adopted son, you just can't kill an Egyptian and get away with it. And so he runs away. He becomes, like many of the patriarchs, a shepherd of sheep and uh, finds his wife and settles down. And then all of a sudden, God, out of a burning bush, calls Moses. And he says, go to Egypt, and you will be the vehicle by which I free my people. And uh, this is pretty awesome. He actually, God goes as far to say, I will make you like God before them. And Aaron shall be your prophet or your mouthpiece because Moses defends himself. Basically, like all of us who God calls to great things, gives excuses to God why he can't do it. Whether he's afraid or it's legitimate, he is like, I don't talk so good most times, you know, and uh, God's like, you're right. Uh, you can have Aaron and he will speak for you. And, and so now we are to the point where Moses and Aaron are going to Egypt and they're going to confront Pharaoh. And we get to the, the part of the story where we come to the, the plagues that face Pharaoh before he releases them. And today's sermon is entitled, Set the Captives Free. When we talk about slavery and when we think about slavery, we often think about the slavery of mankind, which has forever been a sin. You know, enslaving someone else has always been a sin. And, but we're talking today a lot, we're going to be talking about physical slavery, this physical slavery of the Hebrew people, but we're also going to be talking about spiritual slavery. And uh, we might not think that we're in spiritual slavery, but I, I think most times we find ourselves enslaved to something, something. And um, especially if we find ourselves in a position of not knowing Christ. I would, I would say I was 100% a slave to sin before knowing Christ. And there was nothing in me that would make me attractive or make me a, an attractive target for fellow Christians, let alone God, to save. But it's because of his great mercy and grace that he sent somebody to preach the gospel to me. And through his mercy and grace, the Holy Spirit quickened those words. And I became a Christian. Not quite magic like in a moment, but with thoughtful and uh, thoughtful consideration, gave my heart to Jesus. When we read the story 
of Pharaoh and the plagues, and we read about Israel's slavery, making bricks from straw, some, and then, you know, straw and mud, and then Pharaoh taking away even the straw where they had to go find their own uh, and make bricks. We like to think of ourselves as the slaves. We like to think our, of ourselves as God's people, and rightly so, right? We are God's people. We should identify with God's people. But if we really look at the character of the Hebrew people and the character of Pharaoh, I would put it to you that we have much more in common with Pharaoh than we do with the Hebrews. That we have a little bit more identity with him as far as his idolatry and who he thought he was. Because he, as Pharaoh, was God over Egypt. And who, what position do we like to find ourselves in? But God over our own lives. God over everything that, that is we put underneath us, right? That we deem underneath us. Our job, our home, uh, our children. We, are, we like to think of ourselves as gods over these things. And this is typical of all of the Bible. We, and every story, every Hollywood movie you've ever seen, right? You're Luke, not Darth, right? You're Gandalf, not Sauron, right? I'm geeking out right here, right? Let me think of something really macho, right? You're Bruce Willis, not the evil German. Why is it always a German? I don't know. The evil German terrorist, right? In Die Hard. It's, it's you know, we like to think of ourselves in the heroic role, in every story, but I tell you, in the Bible, we should, we should really take a hard look at who we're identifying with, because we, it's important that we be honest with ourselves. See, like Pharaoh, um, we like to see reality based on our emotions and our perception of reality, not facts. And this is increasingly becoming true today. And I'm not going to get political today, but there's no doubt that we live in what, what Webster's has defined most recently as post-truth culture. This is the idea that facts no longer have precedence over what is true, but merely how we feel or what we think about them. And facts kind of get thrown outside, just kind of get thrown to the wind. This is called post-truth culture. Let me just define it. Actually, I have the definition written down. How convenient. Let me just give it to you. Webster's defines, defines it like this. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which object, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion uh, than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So emotion and personal belief are weighing out over facts. This is a post-truth culture. And for, uh, for most of us, we're pretty good at obeying God. We're pretty good at worshiping God. We're pretty good at honoring God until he asks us to do something we don't want to do. When God begins to ask us things that we don't want to do, we say like Pharaoh, who is the Lord and what authority does he have over me? Right? As soon as something inconvenient comes. As a matter of fact, I would put it to most of you that you've never even put discomfort on the table. That, that, that the, the very fact that God may totally shake your life and, and, and lead you to change careers, move, all of these things, these are not even on the table for you. But if God ever does speak to you in just a profound, unignorable way that you cannot just, you cannot just dismiss it, this is when we start to say, who is the Lord and what authority does he have over me? Like Pharaoh because Pharaoh was confronted with facts. I'm telling you, if you look at the, the 10 plagues, which we're going to talk about in detail in our first point, but if you look at the plagues, I was talking with Stacy this week. You know, if I was Pharaoh and I was married to Stacy, we would have given up after flies and gnats because my wife hates bugs. 
hates them, hates them, right? This year for Christmas, I got one of those electric fly swatters, you know, that you just push on the bug, and it, that, those things are awesome, man, and really cool. So that's what she got. That was one of her Christmas presents, not the only one. <laughs> Some of you, are, <laughs> the look from the women, it was not good, right? Actually, I got her a washing machine, too. Just kidding, just kidding. I got her something she wanted, okay? So each of the ten plagues were an example of God confronting false gods. Each one of them directly confronted one of the false gods. And our first point today is God confronts. And <laughs> we're like, God confronts? What? God, we don't like we don't like God confronts. We like God is mercy. We like God is love. But when God confronts, it's like, what? Who, what are you talking about? The truth is God makes it his business to confront idolatry, to confront the worship of false gods. And here we have the Egyptians who worshiped many gods, God for everything. And we have 10 plagues. And while we can't directly confirm that each plague was meant to um, dethrone one of these gods, right? We can't, but we do know that God did have it in mind because we see in verse 12 that he sent the plagues to directly confront the gods of Egypt, right? But there were gods directly related to all the plagues. And so today we're tackling Exodus 5 through 12. And you're thinking, oh man, we got a lot of reading ahead. No, that's not it. As I said last week, and as we move into this new year, here's what I hope, I mean, this is what I hope we can do as a church. I really want you to go all in and trust me in this, okay? We're going to come together every single Sunday. We're going to go through basically the main point, the main gist of certain passages of Scripture. But this is designed for you to fill in the blanks throughout the week by utilizing the online devotional that we have on our website, which directly support the Sunday message. I encourage you to get into a growth group, which will be discussing the Sunday message and how to best apply it to our lives today. This is the complete package for our church. Now, you are welcome. If you just wanted to eat the cherry on top on Sunday, that's okay. Right? That's okay. You can keep coming. You are welcome. But I want to tell you that you are not getting it all if that's all you're doing. Right? You should at least be adding to your daily routine that devotional, which will help you go through the Bible in its entirety with us okay, and connect all the dots. But ultimately, you'll do devotional at home, Come to church on Sunday and then be part of a growth group. And then I really believe you'll be getting a, a, a well-rounded teaching every day of the week, not just on Sunday. You do get Saturdays off on that. But uh, uh, do that with us this year, would you? Would you commit to that? I know it's resolution time, and, and, uh, but you know, if you put it in your heart to do this, I, I believe you'll be blessed because of it. So uh, we're not going to go read all through all of the plagues. We're going to briefly go over them. And I have a little chart here. You probably, I don't know how well you can read it. Not very well. Uh, but it's up there. It's also in the digital bulletin. There's a copy for each and every one of you uh, talking about the plagues. And so the first plague, Moses takes the staff. Aaron is actually holding the staff. And he has the staff. And he takes it. And it's the staff that when he threw it on the ground, it became a snake. And he grabbed it. And again, and it became a staff, right? And so he's going to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. What are you, crazy? I mean, the, the Lord basically says directly to him, let my people go. And, you know, let's just quit hypothesizing about it and read it in the text itself. Exodus chapter um, 7, verse 14. 
The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as it is as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go. Let's everybody just say that together. Let my people go. Yeah. Let my people go. That they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. This is the first plague that we see, turning the Nile into blood, and all the fish die. How many of you have ever spent five minutes in a fish house? couple of you, okay? A fish house is where fishermen go after they are catch to clean fish. I'm telling you, it stinks like no stank you've ever smelled, right? It really stinks horribly. Dead fish carcasses reek. Here, the, their entire water supply turned to blood. You think, okay, this, this is pretty good. I think this is enough. Maybe I should just let God's people go. But no, Pharaoh holds on for 10 more plagues. But see, the first plague, the plague of blood in the Nile, confronted the God happy, happy, the God of the Nile flood. And, and uh, it's a direct confrontation to this God. Then comes the frogs, which are pretty gross. Frogs are everywhere, jumping out of the river. This is a kind of confrontation of the God Hiquet, the frog goddess. They have a frog goddess. Weird. Okay, And here the Lord says there is no one like the Lord our God. Then comes gnats. And this confronts the Egyptian god Geb. And the magicians at this time, the magicians of Pharaoh said, this is the finger of God. Even they are acknowledging this is God. Pharaoh doesn't listen. Then comes flies. This is a direct confrontation to the god Kepfer, the resurrection god depicted by the beetle. If you've ever seen any movie any movie with Egypt in it, you see this little beetle, right? I'm a big fan of the movie The Mummy, right? And then there's that beetle. There you have the god Kepfer. What's the, hey, what's the German word for little bug? Kefer. Kefer. Very similar. All right. Then you have the death of livestock, which is a confrontation of the god Apis, which you see is the chief bull god. Then boils, Sekhmet. Sekhmet. Hey, there you go. That's a confrontation of him. Hail, the god Nut. That's an easy one. Nut, right? The sky goddess. Then comes locusts, the god Min, the patron god of crops. The locusts eat every single crop that the hail did not destroy. Then comes darkness, Amon-Ra, the sun god, and Pharaoh, son of Ra. This confronts them, and there's darkness over the earth. Now, if there was darkness all over the world, all over Denmark, it wouldn't be that big a deal right? Because it's dark there all the time, right? It's always dark there in the wintertime. But here's Egypt, and darkness comes over the land so dark that you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. There's no streetlights. There's nothing. It's just pure darkness. And then lastly, we have the death of the firstborn. And this confronts all the gods of Egypt. No one could save them. And the Lord says in 12.12, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Each one of these plagues confronting one of the gods of Egypt. God is showing himself to be the God of the universe. If you turn with me just quickly 
Just ahead in your Bible to the last book of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, you get to Deuteronomy 6. And here we have something that the Hebrews called the Shema. Is that my saying that right, Victor? Shema? Shema? And what this is, is this is a confession of the one God, that there is one God. So in verse 4 of chapter 6 in Deuteronomy, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them and when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on the as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God is showing himself to be the one true God over every other false god in Egypt. Now, today, we do not worship Ra, right? Anybody here worship the sun god Ra? Raise your hand and just complete defiance. Just raise it up. No, right? We don't, we don't, we don't worship happy. We don't worship nut, right? We don't worship kafir or kafir or whatever. We don't worship these false gods, right, of the Egyptians. But make no mistake about it, there are false gods. There are false gods, and a lot of times, sometimes unwittingly, we find ourselves worshiping at their feet. We have the god of greed, of sexual immorality, we have the gods of self, which I would say is the most prolific false god in our culture, is worshiping ourselves. We have made ourselves God. Anytime when we take authority over God's word and we say, well, this is true and this isn't true, then God is no longer God, then you're God, right? Because you are sitting in judgment over God's word. This is the biggest idolatry there is, right? And it's the most common, so while we may, when we read these things, we might just dismiss them, okay? Like the, the frog god, that's stupid, right? Or the bull god, that's also dumb. I don't get it. But what, what we need to realize is that while we're not worshiping these false gods and we're not worshiping the false gods of the Greeks, we may not even be worshiping the false god of the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists. But there are false gods. There are false gods. And if we're not, if we're not careful if we're not vigilant, if we are not putting the Lord our God first, and we are not saying with Deuteronomy 6 that the Lord our God is one, and he is Lord over all, we, f we can find ourselves quickly worshiping false gods, even worshiping ourselves. Anything that we put before God is a false god, is an idol in our lives. The thing is, when we're confronted about our false gods, when we're confronted about what we're truly worshiping, our first reaction oftentimes is to kill the messenger, right? It's, it's, and it's, that's, that's actually Pharaoh's first response too, is to get rid of Moses and Aaron and send them away. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we do most of the time too. I'm guilty as well. Stacy's dad was really good at calling me out on stuff, really good. And at first... I hated it. I hated it. I would get upset, maybe not right to his face, but I would be upset. I would be angry. And then I'd go home, most likely read the Bible. Like, oh gosh, he's right. He's 100% right. I'm such an idiot. 
you know, and I'd go back the next day and I'd say, I'm sorry, and I'd apologize. And by God's grace, hopefully put that thing aside, right? Whatever it was in my life, my attitude being wrong, dealing with somebody or whatever it was, he was just really good at reading my mail and figuring out what was going on in me. But a lot of times what we do when, when there's somebody like that in our lives, if we don't value that, we reject it and we push it away and then we stop growing. We stop growing. Number one, we've told God no because God has sent somebody into your life to confront your lifestyle. God sent somebody to love you. Love you enough to tell you something you don't want to hear. Anybody in the world can tell you something you want to hear. They don't have to love you, right? They just want to get something from you. They don't have to love you at all. But people who love you will tell you things that you don't want to hear and put your relationship on the line. That's important. It's important that we have people in our lives who do that. And instead of shooting the messenger, whether it be your pastor or your growth group leader or your Bible study friend, no matter who it is, instead of reacting violently against them and saying, get out of here, that's crazy, I can do whatever I want, the Bible doesn't say that, blah, 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 we should listen. We should listen to what they're saying and, and, and ask ourselves really hard questions. Are we worshiping idols in this area? Is there something I'm unwilling to give up even if God told me to give it up? right? Is God telling me to give it up? And I want to tell you that sometimes God is asking us to sacrifice things on the altar of worship that are not forbidden by the Bible, right? Now, I'm not here to tell you what those things are, okay? But it's different for every single person, right? It's different. Some of you can do certain things and some of you can't, right? And we can't do anything the Bible calls sin, but the, the things that the Bible doesn't call sin, some of us are still not able to do, right? And I've used this illustration many times, I don't drink alcohol. And I'm not putting that on you, but that's something that the Lord has said to me, that's, that's it, you're done, right? I got, became a Christian, and then I, went, I, I, I left the Air Force, and I went back home, and I sat down with my uncle, who was very close to me in age, and we sat down, we had a few beers, and I went home. And I just was like, at that moment, that's, that was the last beer I had. And I just decided that, would, you know, this is the Lord saying, now this isn't for you anymore. Now that's my life. I'm not putting that on you, but what I'm saying is if I would have been like somebody come to tell me that and then I was like, oh, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say I can't drink, so I'm going to keep drinking. But is it really beneficial, right, to you personally? Are you who you want to be when you're drinking? Are you who you want to be when you're playing video games? Are you who you want to be when you're this, that, playing, you know, you're, are you playing too much golf? Are you playing too much this? Are you doing that? Whatever it is, are you working too much? Whatever it is that, that is in your life that's disrupting it, if somebody's coming to you saying, look at your priorities are jacked up, and instead of listening to them and correcting the behavior, are you rejecting it? Are you rejecting it? Are you pushing them away? Because the Bible might not expressly forbid it, but you're like, well, the, you know, if the Bible doesn't say I can't do it, I'm going to do it. And that, I'm telling you, that's no way to live. Live in sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Listen to people who love you and are trying to help you grow as Christians. I'm chasing a little rabbit here, but bear with me. I think this is so important because so many people are stifled in their Christian growth. They become Christians and all they do for the rest of their life is sit in church. And they're not growing and they're not becoming leaders. You are not... God's destiny for you is to not occupy a seat in a church. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you to be leaders and not just at work. I don't care if you command hundreds or dozens or nobody. God expects you to be a leader 
in your community. He expects you to be a leader in the church. And you're not just sitting there receiving information. You're in, you're in church leadership academy. That's what you're in. And you're receiving information that may not be directly relatable to your circumstance today, but God's pouring into you through preaching, through Bible study, through reading the word, so that you might train someone else, that God might send you out to set somebody else free. Do you see yourself that way? I don't think most of you do. You don't see yourself like Moses going to proclaim the gospel that there is one God who is Lord over all and, and, and seeing people set free. Ungrateful people. Moses served an ungrateful people, no doubt. But, no, but he was called to go and proclaim the gospel. So after all the plagues, after all the locusts, all the hail, all the darkness, we come to the final plague, the death of the firstborn son. Because while Pharaoh had plenty of time to listen, he didn't. And so here it, we find that God provides. God confronts, but God also provides. God doesn't just confront us with our sin and leave us hopeless because who of us can overcome sin on our own? None of us. Not one of us can overcome sin. But God is gracious and he gives to us uh, a Passover lamb. Today we're going to be celebrating communion, but it's going to be a little bit later in our service because I wanted to get to this part of our service first. As we get to God provides. The Israelites, we learn in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, the Israelites were also guilty of, of idol worship in Egypt. It turns out, like many of us, wherever the Israelites find themselves, they start taking on the culture of them around those around them, right? A lot of you have taken to wearing leather pants, and leather shorts, and funny socks and shoes when you're in Germany, right? You go to fest and you hang out. You're taking on the culture around you, right? right? And I mean, if, if you've served other places, maybe you own a kimono because you've served in Japan, or uh, you own uh, um, a big, like, uh, sword from the Middle East or something. You've, you've, acquired these things and we try to blend in a little bit. You know, I've been here seven years. I can pretty much pick an American out of a crowd pretty easy. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's pretty easy to figure out who we are in the crowds. And believe me, the Germans can totally figure it out who you guys are. And, uh, uh, but we try, we try to blend in. But here's the thing. There's a difference between blending in and then becoming part of the culture. And while Going to fest, I, I know this, I don't want to just ruin everybody's good time, but here's the thing about fest, right? While going to fest is fun and riding the rides is fun and hanging out with friends is fun, drunkenness is never part of a Christian's life, period. And while we're to be part of a culture, we're not to be influenced by it, right? And this is what God called the Israelites to. Everywhere they go, he calls them to be separate from the culture around them. He doesn't call them to isolate themselves, but he says, do not take on the customs of the people you find around you. But the Israelites, just like us, are prone to do so. Why? Because we love acceptance. We want to be part of something. We, we, we have a crowd mentality. Even Americans do have a crowd mentality. Not so much as Japan, maybe, where it's a shame culture and all this, you know, but you know, we still care what people think about us, and we want to be part of the group. And so we give into it. And as Christians, this should never, never be who we are, right? It doesn't mean we isolate ourselves. It doesn't even mean that we point the finger and judge everybody around us and ruin everybody what they're doing, right? But it does mean that we separate ourselves from it, and we're not part of that. 
We're not, while we might be part of Germany for now, we should not engage in German sin, right? Just like we shouldn't be engaging in American sin, right? You know, because Germany has legal prostitution, none of you should go visit a prostitute. How many agree with that, right? Okay, most of you. I should have seen everybody's hand. <laughs> Just FYI. But drunkenness is no different. It's no different, right? Is it, is it legal to be drunk? Yeah, it's legal by their law. Does the Bible forbid it? Absolutely. Should Christians do it? No, right? We shouldn't do it. So go out, have a good time, have fun, don't get drunk. Basically, I love Mark Driscoll, and some of the things he said were very poignant, right? He said some dumb things too, but one thing he said, he's a pastor in Seattle, it was just very confrontational. One thing he said is, love God, do what you want. But in that order, understood? Love God, do what you want. Put God first. Put God first and then relax. Do what you like, right? But put God first. That's really, really important. It's really simplified, but it's something you can remember, right? It's something that you can do. So here we get to the Israelites who are guilty of idol worship, just like the Egyptians. And unlike the other nine plagues, um, this one's not going to be reversed. You can't undo this one. The firstborn's going to die. And there's no turning back. And Israel is not going to be exempt. Judgment is coming over the land, and Israel is going to be judged too. But God makes a way. God provides. He provides a way for Israel to be saved. And what's the way he does? He, he says each family get a lamb. And if your family's too small or you're too poor, you can't afford a lamb, share one with the family next to you or the family next to them. Take the lamb, slaughter the lamb. Take the blood of the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. So the doorpost here and here and on the lintel in the middle, put the blood here. And when the judgment comes over the land, I will see the blood over the doorpost and I will pass over you. This is called the Passover. This is what Jesus was celebrating with the disciples, what we call First Communion or the, the Lord's Supper. He was actually celebrating the Passover. The, the lamb's blood on the doorposts and, the, and God's judgment passing by. Why did God's judgment pass by? Because the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn son. In every house in Egypt that day, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son, period, because judgment had come. Now, we're going to get a little bit fire and brimstone stony here, okay? Because we don't like to talk about judgment, especially today in our culture. Nobody, it's like, God judges me. Anybody who says that, you're absolutely right, but you shouldn't say that boldly and proudly. You should say that in fear and in trembling. God judges me. God judges me, God judges you. That's absolutely true. But here's the thing, God does judge. He is totally holy, totally merciful, loving and kind, but he is also totally just. Would you want to serve a God who was not? Not me. God is just. He is perfect. And judgment came upon the land. The lamb was provided, the blood was on the doorposts, and every Hebrew child was spared. But in every Egyptian house, the Bible says, in Egypt, there was a great wailing. We read about a great wailing in Egypt again, huh? And, and when we read about the birth of Jesus, and every Hebrew child is killed in an effort to, to murder Jesus. 
right? There's a great wailing in Bethlehem in that moment. But today, there's a great wailing. Now Jesus is celebrating the Passover, and as we celebrate communion in a few moments, Jesus takes the bread of the Passover, and he breaks it, and he shares it with his disciples, and he says, take this and eat it. This is my body. This is not the Passover anymore. This is my body, which is given for you. Jesus became the Passover lamb for you and for me. And when we receive Jesus, his blood is over the doorposts and the lintel of our heart. And God's judgment passes by. Now this is what's awesome about being a Christian. Some, some people have heard it said being saved. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what's so awesome. It's not about what we're going to receive in heaven. It's about what happens right now. In that moment, we, we understand our own guilt Yes, we're idol worshipers. Yes, we're sinners. But Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Basically saying, Jesus, I accept that you are my sacrifice on the cross and you bore my judgment. I receive that. I receive that. And I put my faith and my hope and my trust in that, that substitutionary atonement. And we give our lives to Jesus. And in that moment, God's wrath will pass over us. Right now, there's a great judgment coming upon the world one day. One day, every single person will face judgment. But those who are in Christ will not face that judgment because we've already declared ourselves guilty and we've accepted Jesus as our Savior and we've already been, our punishment's already been meted out. What other punishment would there be, right? Jesus died on the cross. We believe in the complete atonement. It's finished. And so that in that great that great judgment of the world, Christians will not face that, right? Now, we will be judged according to our works, but this is really important because a lot of us live as Christians. We put our faith in Christ, but we still live with a lot of guilt. And like a lot of, we're under, we're under a cloud of guilt. This is not how God intended us to live. We are saved. The blood of Christ is over the doorposts of our heart and his wrath will pass over us, not because he loves us, but because Christ died. Because Christ died. Without Christ on the cross, without the sacrifice, without the perfect Passover lamb that's without blemish, without sin, who died not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world, there's no salvation. There's no salvation. There's no hope for us. God provided the perfect Passover lamb. Lastly, God preserves. We think about the 10th plague, and it's pretty harsh. The firstborn son of every family dead because of Pharaoh's hard heart. But Pharaoh had nine opportunities to turn away from his sin against Israel. And there's something that we have to learn through this, is that salvation often comes through judgment. It's often through difficult circumstances that people become Christians. It's through difficult circumstances that we rededicate our lives to Christ. It's through difficult circumstances that we really get serious about our faith. Deliverance comes through judgment. And the salvation of the world came through judgment. Through Jesus Christ's judgment on the, through the judgment of God on Jesus on the cross. It's through that horrible, the, the worst case of injustice the world has ever known that our salvation comes, right? And in our life, it's the same. 
It's through difficult circumstances that we grow the most. It's through being challenged. It's through, through overcoming our weakness. It's through overcoming just insurmountable obstacles or sometimes even watching someone else overcome those things. But salvation comes through hardship. It comes through judgment. And God, is preser- he preserved the Israelites. In, in Daniel, he preserved the remnant those few who were still serving God, he made sure that he preserved them. In the Holocaust, we see the preservation of Israel still, right? God preserves his people, and he will not let them be wiped off the face of the earth. And today we share in that, that promise with Israel. We share in that promise through Jesus. Egypt is not that much different than it is today. The culture of Egypt was a god of pluralistic pluralism of many gods. And in Egypt, it was, it was perfectly fine to worship the God of Israel in your house or in your synagogue or your church. But as soon as you went outside and you started talking about the Lord our God is one, there is no God but him, the God of Israel, that's when you had problems. And that's exactly when we have problems today. Is everybody's fine with you worshiping Jesus in your house? Everybody's fine with you being in church today. There's no problem. And we feel safe today, and I'm glad we do. But the truth is, when you go out into the world, and you go into your workplace, and you go into your social circles, and you start talking about Jesus, how comfortable are you then? Right? It's not very comfortable. And our culture is increasingly making it more uncomfortable, as uncomfortable as absolutely possible. Because nobody likes the God who confronts. You don't like it. They don't like it. It's true, right? But it's through that confrontation, it's through that that people become Christians. It's through that direct confrontation of idolatry that people realize that the Lord our God is one. And who's the, how do I know this? You're here today. Today we have a full house, a full house mostly of people who have decided the Lord our God is one, who have left the world of idolatry because somebody confronted their idols and then responded in faith to the one true God. That's how I know. You're here today. Churches all over the world are going to be full today because of people who responded to this confrontation. And so this idea that, 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 Christians should be these people of peace who never speak any kind of confrontation is is a total illusion. It's a total illusion. We are called to proclaim the Lord our God is one. And that is confrontational to every idol God there is, period, right? And will that make you unpopular? In some circles, yeah, it's going to make you unpopular. But will people become Christians because of it? Yes. I I 100% know this. It doesn't feel like it, and the truth is, to most of us, it's more important to be popular, (laughs) right? It's just more important to be liked. That's, it's more important. It's more important to advance our career. That's what's more important, not the salvation of souls. I mean, I'm standing before you confessing this, not, I'm telling you, I fall into the same trap. I'm your pastor. It's what I do full time. It's easier to hang out with people who are just like me, it's easy, easier to stand up here and say all these things than it is to go out and say it on the street corner. It's easier. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. 
It doesn't mean we shouldn't kick against that in ourselves to be comfortable, to be liked, to be popular, and, and, and preach the gospel. Because God is calling us just like he called Moses and Aaron to go and set his people free. Period. And it doesn't mean we have to be turds about it. It doesn't mean we have to make people's lives miserable. But what it means is we can't compromise truth. We can't compromise truth. I, I, I'm used to preaching in Texas, see? And I mean, I've got Wes back there. He's from the South. I love Wes. He's like, amen, amen, amen. He's the one guy I know who's always listening. But a lot of times I'm standing up here preaching and I'm just getting this. And I don't know what to do with that. You know, I'm here. I, I, I'm not the most articulate guy, that's for sure. But I'm, I, I hope that the truth that's being proclaimed, look, we've had a lot of Bible today. And the Bible is true. No matter how much I mess it up, the Bible is true. This story is true. And it's not some story of history. It, it's for us today. It's for us today, and I just want to encourage you to start seeing yourself as a person whom God can use, who God can use, right? You are not just a body in a church. That's not who you are to me. That's not who you are to God. You're, a, you're someone God can use. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his mouth. You are the one God is sending into the world. You know, our church supports I don't know, 30 missionary, plus 30 plus missionary units. We're sending them, but we're also sending 110, 130 right here, right here into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to confront the idols of this world who are, who, who, who are leading people to destruction and to proclaim the one true God as one. Amen. Be encouraged today. 2019 is a year for resolutions. And I was reading in Oswald Chambers, and uh, he had an encouraging word. He said, resolutions are impossible to keep. Be encouraged, right? We want to change. We know that. But what we have to do is invite the Holy Spirit in to do the changing. That's what we got to do. Turn it over to God. Pray about it. Leave it to him. Do what we can, but trust in the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Amen. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.